here's an idea. What if there was a way to talk about tackling CMMC compliance that focuses on practical progress, not on what's not ready and what's not defined and what deadlines are slipping and how much it costs? Basically, not on FUD. That's the idea behind today's podcast. Let's solve for CMMC. Can we do that? Hi, everyone. It's Brent Steiner. Welcome to the Mosaic Podcast, where we explore the nexus between the cloud, compliance, and connectivity for federal government contractors. As a member of the DIB, you've been hearing all about CMMC for years, and there are many excellent sources out there that dive into the whys and the wherefores and the worries of CMMC. The question we'd like to pose today, though, is we've heard all about the challenges of CMMC. How do you overcome them in a smart, scalable, technology-first way? While others may be mired in what can't be done, we focus on solutions. Welcome to the Mosaic Podcast by Technology and Business Solutions, the podcast for GovCon execs and IT pros maximizing the multi-cloud for their business and their people. Join your host, Brent Steiner, along with TBS CEO Jay Etheridge and Dell Tech co-founder Eric Brown as they explore multi-cloud best practices for compliance, connectivity, and more. Let's get started. One of our core tenets on the Mosaic podcast is that we're better together. And so today we've assembled an incredible team of practitioners and business leaders and technologists that are brilliantly solving CMMC compliance. Joining us are Theo Pachianis, founder of the CMMC Consortium, a leading resource for the DIB that's focused on collaborative approaches to compliance. Jay Etheridge, founder and CEO of GovCon Cloud Pioneer TBS. TBS is an RPO, Aaron Christmas, founder of Ronathan, an AI-powered compliance engine, and Dr. Timothy Schilbach, CEO and president of Panacity, cybersecurity experts for GovCons. Panacity is a C3PAO. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. So before we get to the matter at hand, and we'll certainly get in the weeds today, I do want to quickly go around the horn with everyone and just pose a simple question to you, which is, what is the one thing that any defense contractor can do to kickstart their compliance for CMMC, regardless of budget or resources or timelines? And Theo, let's start with you. Great question, Brent. And thanks again for having uh, us on here. One of the first things that, you know, as the consortium, what we, we brought this together to provide resources. And one of the things that we learned over the year, the last year and a half or so as we've come together, was to provide a sort of a diagnostic report we self-assessment where that was created with with this team here i'll pass that over to tim he can describe a little bit more about what was in what entails in the self-assessment because he was sort of the architect and the author behind all of that so it's a very helpful diagnostic tool for all defense contractors sure tim go for it no absolutely uh so one of the first big issues that we found in doing this now for a little over almost eight years, uh, roughly, we started off with the NIST 800-171 and started coming in under CMMC. And a lot of organizations were having to pay large sums of money just to get a basic gap of where their systems are and, and where they're at, right? So imagine, I guess it's kind of like going into the mechanic shop, right? With your car and not knowing what's wrong with it, essentially, and then having to pay thousands of dollars to be able to understand what is even wrong with your car before you even get a chance to go fix it, right? And so that's one of the, the tenets of things that we try to do early on was trying to establish 
a way that we can have uh, a Q&A essentially with the business owners and identify their issues and rapidly assess where their gaps were by providing them at least with initial uh, intake report, right? And then this actually informs what the actual real gap analysis is going to look like and allows us to scope it a bit better, right? It's a tool that everybody can use, RPOs, C3PAOs, or even self-assessments um, as far as organizations are concerned. Cool, cool. Aaron, what would you say in terms of the one thing an organization can do to kickstart their CMMC journey? Yeah, and it's really echoing the sentiments uh, that Tim was just laid out. It's really understanding where you are. And that was sort of where we came from is doing being an analyst and having to sort of run through the mass of documentation required to sort of get an understanding of where an organization lies in terms of compliance with any framework. And that's really what you need to do is, is understand where you lie. Jay, what, what, anything to add here in terms of that get started approach for CMMC? Well, you know, I think the, the, the key thing and, and having a resource like the self-assessment is a great place to start because it really lets you orient, you know, your, your journey. I think the other thing is to make sure you, you treat CMMC in, in, the, in the vein it's really off, right? So it's not, a, it's not a point solution. It's not a, hey, this is something I've got to get done this year and then I can get back whatever it is I do for the government. I think the best way to really look at it is, you know, it, it's an IT lifestyle change for some. There are going to be those people out there in the market who are going to do the self-assessment or look at their internal processes and says, hey, great, I need to tweak a few things and life goes on. There are going to be some other people who are going to have a little heavier lift. But I think the important thing is, you know, to look at it as, you know, things are going to change and that's actually going to be good for us. It's going to be good for the government. It's going to be good for the defense industrial base. So I think that's the mindset going into it of, you know, this could be a change, but it'll be, a, it'll be good for everybody involved is probably the best place to start. Yeah. Well, and, and I like, you know, jumping back with you, Theo, I like that idea of how do we overcome inertia, right? Because, you know, this has been a melodrama, the CMMC rollout for probably almost seven years now. You know, the starter star gun is finally fired, but how do orgs begin tackling CMMC after so much waiting? How do they get started? Is there anything you want to add to that, Theo? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is understanding what it is and, and you know, where it came from and sort of like the history of what, ha what has gotten us here. And so one of the things that we've also done was is to look at from through the consortium lens was to educate and bring as much information to the contractors. Even today, when we're probably about 10 months out from eight, less than that, sorry, eight months out from it taking effect for fiscal year 2025, 20, uh, there are still people who are not aware or not paying attention to it. And, you know, with so, so many government contractors and many times it's, you know, they work in the DOD, much of their revenue comes from the DOD. So if they don't get this in place, then it impacts their business, which impacts their employees, their families, like the trickle down effect can be pretty drastic. So we've created an information uh, session that is broken down into lay terms, taken demystified and, you know, take, taking the complexities and really made it into uh, everyday sort of language, but then also the business case behind as a business owner myself and under working with small, medium sized business for many, many years, 
costs and resources are always tough. So it's one of those things that we also try to address along the way. So the, the CMMC info sessions have been a great place. Um, and we're doing those monthly with strategic partners, with large primes, like, for example, the economic development authorities or SBDCs and MBDAs of around the country. So that's, I think, a major uh, element as well. Sure. Well, and, and teaming is part of that, I would assume, right? I mean, because of the complexity of, of NIST 800, a lot of IT departments are focused on the urgent ahead of the important sometimes. And it just seems like it's it's a heavy lift to get that done. So pulling in partners seems to me to be a good approach. Is there anything more you'd, you'd add to that, Theo, or, or talk about with that? Great, great point. So I've been sort of coining a phrase in my mind. It's teaming in technology that's going to get us there. And that was one of the fundamental uh, reasons that, you know, bringing the consortium together. But as you see on, 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 you know, on this, on this today, we, we have a combination of experience and technology and resources and, you know, to, to bring it all together so we can do things faster and more effectively moving forward. So teaming and teamwork, I'm oh, sorry, teaming and technology are going to be the, the driving factors to get this done, to tackle this immense goal. Sure. Well, and part of that, as I think about it, is for smaller organizations, so subcontractors, most likely, you know, folks in the construction trades are doing operational support or maintenance work, you know, they're handling CUI, but they probably don't have a lot of exposure to IT controls or the staff to do that. So how do they go about tackling this and sort of delivering for their primes? Because that's a, that's a community that has the requirements but there might be a real disconnect in terms of just the resources they have available to them. So that's, you know, understanding where they are specifically for, to that. Everything is sort of summizable to the, you know, is bespoke to the actual business, how they behave, what they do and how they mm -hmm. handle the information. So there's a lot, unfortunately, there's a lot of times it's, it depends on the particular situation, but where the company and how they're behaving. Yeah. The first thing would be is to one, determine what kind of information are they getting from their prime. And so it's all about securing the supply chain. And as you mentioned, if, depending on what they're looking at. So you mentioned the trades, construction companies, when they're looking at blueprints, that's, that's considered uh, the CUI, the way they have to really maintain a certain level of, of how they handle that information data. And then they have yeah. to just implement these, you know, these processes with the policies and processes for their people. And then documented to have the proof of it and ensuring that their behavior, the people's being meets the standard in which, which that they need to qualify for C to, to qualify for CMMC. Um, yeah. And Jay, did you want to jump in? Well, yeah, I, I was, I was going to jump in and just talk about it. Maybe it's just another plug for the consortium and what we do, but the, the fact that there are going to be companies at different maturity levels, there are going to be different sets of requirements means a group like the consortium can really help. And, and part of it is, and, and you know, the, the product that TBS offers, Altus, is a full outsourcing package. And, and they're going to be people who do the, the self-assessment and they're going to look at that and they're going to say, you know, in order to really do this, I'm going to have anti-staffs, I'm going to have to, you know, modify and, and develop my policies and so forth. And, you know, this is coming up at the, with the next fiscal year and I didn't budget for that, right? It, it, and maybe, maybe that's not the road I want to go down. So on one end of things, you know, the beauty of the consortium is if you just need targeted help to get there, you can find someone in the group to get you there. 
Um, we like to think we're on the other side of the, the fence um, where, you know, one of the options may be to work with a provider like us, which is going to say, you know what, we have a, a solution that you can, you can rent. In other words, we can become your solution provider. We'll provide you with the policies, the procedures, uh, a help desk for your people. We'll help you manage all of the things that were designed specifically for CMMC. Right. And, and it's funny, CMMC, and you talked about the tortured past, but you also mentioned that it came out of NIST 800. And so for us, we've actually been delivering the product uh, for about five years now, but it was based on NIST 800. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'd like to say we were very prescient, but that's not really what happened. We actually had a, an initial customer come to us and said, you know what, um, our circumstances have changed. We're becoming what's called a mitigated company. We're losing our entire IT staff environment, you know, in two weeks, you know, can you take uh -huh. it? And, and, and we did that. And one of the, the stipulations, because we had to hammer out a contract is like, you know, to what standards are you going to manage? And for them, it, it was NIST 800, 171. And, and so what we did was we put together the policies, the procedures, the responses, and most importantly, the ability to produce evidence because it was, that's what audits are about, right? The auditor is going to come in and they're going to look at your policies and procedures and they're probably going to say, these are great. And they're going to say, can you provide us evidence that you actually do this thing, right? And so that was one of the things we had to, to build in and, you know, it, it was, it was different, but it wasn't a heavy lift because we've been doing, we've had an SOC to audit for our operations for over 10 years now. So we're kind of used to producing evidence, but that's what I mean by they're, they're different, different ends, you know, so it could be small or it could be specialized. You know, it, it's interesting. One of our customers has over a hundred employees and it's not that they can't afford their own staff. What it really is, is focus for them, right? They do something very specific for the government. It's very important. They've got tight deadlines and so forth. And what they really appreciate is that they are managing that process as one would manage a vendor, as opposed to managing that process where you really need to be able to manage a lot of domain specialists, be it cybersecurity or database administrators, you know, firewall administrators, that kind of thing. So like I said, it's a, it's a good thing to bring it full circle back to the consortium that you can do that self-assessment and then you can, you can take a step back and say, what do I want to do for my business, right? And yeah. at the end of the day, hopefully you end up where, where you need to be, which is, you know, I'm CMMC compliant and not just day one, but, you know, that's my new operating IT lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Tim, I want to jump to you, but something Jay said, I think, is a nice segue here, which is all the artifacts and, and the gathering of that for any compliance regime. And, you know, as a cybersecurity provider, how do you practically deal with the sheer volume of all that data collection and evaluation, you know, especially for CMMC, but for any framework? What, what does that look like for you? Oh, absolutely. I, those are always great questions because as an assessor, we're in a bit of a different scenario than most organizations are that are assisting you, like RPOs, for instance. We have a very finite amount of time. So when we start the engagement with the customer, they are to provide us with um, a large volume of documentation. 
That could be several thousand pages of documentation. It could be dozens, if not hundreds of documents, depending on the complexity and size of the, um, of the organization, of course, right? <laughs> and in doing that, that means there's a lot of reading. That means that the assessors have to correlate all of the potential issues and all of the things that may be problematic. Uh, they also have to create a questionnaire so that they can conduct the interviews. They also have to create a list of evidence that they need to be able to have or see in order to be able to ensure that those practices are firmly in place and have been verified by those assessors. So this is really where I think we're getting into a crisis crunch because we have human beings that only have so much time to look over something and they are only able to give the information that they have at that moment, right? And they're not able to give you a very complex answer or do a lot of analysis on, on what we have here. So that's the reason why, you know, we paired up with uh, the Ronathan AI so that we can, you know, take that intake initially instead of uh, sending things via email, right? Everything can go through a secure web portal now, get stuck in one spot. Your information doesn't leave, doesn't end up in somebody else's mailbox um, or God knows where, right? We want to make sure that we're able to a securely deliver these mechanisms and also at the point of collection, we have the ability now to have the they go out and look at all the issues and all the things and correlate the documentation and generate a list for the assessors of saying, hey, here's the things I think you should be worrying about and things that you should be digging into. That actually frees us up to be more agile and being able to quicker conduct the assessment, identify the evidence issues and shortcomings, and then more rapidly get through that assessment process. So now Instead of it being a multi-week assessment process, it's down to a few days, if not a week, right? Companies under 50, we typically can get through in, a, in about a week or less. And right now we're, we're averaging about two days under the joint surveillance assessments for under 50 or even 100, uh, under 100 companies. Now you get into a large defense contractor, they have multiple sites, they're geo-dispersed, they have a lot of employees and organizations and different people responsible for a lot of different areas. A smaller business has got a handful of people in the back office. We've seen companies of 50, 150 or 200 have basically five people in the back office essentially dealing with these issues today. So yeah. that's, I guess, how we're going to deal with the sheer volume is we're really going to turn to technology because it's people, processes and things, right, that we have to evaluate. And that technology is going to allow us to more rapidly do it um, and identify the issues on the outset and not wonder if we did miss something um, along the way. Sure. Well, and I, I want to jump back in a minute, Tim, on what I've been calling the mother of all bottlenecks. But just just for uh, specifics, that tool you use is called Compass. Is that right? That's what you have available for that intake? It, that is correct. So we actually call it the Touchstone Compliance Assessor. It's actually yeah. a new tool that we've derived from one of our uh, larger tool sets. So before yeah. we started down the path of assisting individual organizations, for the last 16, uh, 17 years, we have built a suite of software that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, they use and the American Laboratory Accreditation uses. So all FedRAMP as well as all NIST certifications utilize this platform to manage this process. It manages assessors, it manages the reaccreditation and the accreditation process, it manages the workflows, it manages everything essentially. We found that Small organizations don't need this big, beefy thing, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's just way overkill. What we needed to do is we needed to create something to where they can, A, conduct lots of assessments. Continuous assessing is, is going to be key. 
right? And once your program is in place, wouldn't it be great just to identify your stakeholders and then they just get a questionnaire periodically to update the information? So that way it makes intake more natural, more easy to maintain and manage the program. Because I think we're focusing in this conversation a lot on the beginning of the journey. And once the accreditation has been granted, that is literally the very beginning of this journey. It is not the end of it. It is a cyclical journey that will never end. And you have to have continuous improvement. Yeah, any identification. But here's what happens is people will typically get their accreditations. They'll put things on the shelf. They stop doing the processes until it comes time to re-accredit. Again, the accreditation process requires you to send um, monthly updates, updates about your security posture and program. And organizations like us who are issuing the accreditation, if you have too much change in your environment that can uh, trigger a new reassessment, or of course, you're going to have to have an annual health check, and you're also going to have to have a triannual or once every three year reaccreditation around that process. Yeah. Are you finding that organizations are trying to build their own engines at their level? You know, I'm going to use a SharePoint or an Alfresco or something like that for data collection or what, how would you speak to that? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, accreditation, uh, and I've been doing this like 30 years now, I've done it for the government as a government employee. I've done it in uniform as a military person. I'm now doing it in the civil sector as, you know, a uh, tenured professional in this area. And this process has always been a pen and paper game. Most mm-hmm. organizations maintain all their things in a file share or SharePoint, uh, a very simple system that's really not designed to do this exact thing. If you actually take a look at some of the products out there for governance, most of all the products in the market sector have the same thing in common. They're great for document management, number one, inversion control. That's great as is SharePoint, as is OneDrive or several other different types of technologies you can use. But those technologies weren't purpose built for those purposes. And they're not going to look at the content of the documentation and ensure that it's on point and it it passes muster with other people that have already been, you know, accredited essentially. So when you create a document, I think people are like, is this good enough? Is this okay? And the, the anxiety going into an assessment of not knowing whether the things that you've created are are good unless you have somebody who's a tenured professional they come in they have a lot of confidence and experience because they've been through this process over and over and over again they can tell you what right looks like but how do we take that information out of those people's brains and impart it into a system that essentially uh, you know people like us are a rarity out there there is more people needing our services than there are of us to give those services out there. And we're flooding the market sector in the last two years with all these new professionals that have no, I would call them professional wisdom. They may be smart on the book, right? But the book is just the bare knowledge you need in order to be able to start the work. The wisdom comes from the proximity of seeing the documentation, seeing the process, going through the accreditation process over and over and over again, and knowing what right looks like. And that's why we wanted to pair something with the Ronathan AI. If our system didn't have the Ronathan AI, it would essentially be another workflow and document management system. Gotcha. Yes, with a governance flavor, but really the power and the engine of this platform is the ability to understand, critique, and give you the consumer confidence that is required in order to, you know, get everything built out there for you. Right. So. Sure. Now, and I'm going to turn to you, Aaron, in a, in a second to, to go through some of the the nuts and bolts of the AI piece, but just real quick, Tim, I think right now there are 50 assessor organizations to address 200,000 plus defense contractors or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? There's an obvious disconnect there in terms of supply and demand. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the problem is actually even bigger than we're even discussing here, because I think we're focused on the U.S. Con uh, companies, right? Uh, the Department right. of Defense or the Pentagon basically said, estimates there are around 400,000 people in this process, Man, not meaning direct contractors, but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a supply chain protection, meaning that prime contractor has a series of subcontractors and those subcontractors might have some subcontractors, but they also might have things like HR staffing firms, accounting firms, uh, people coming in to clean their facilities. All these people have access to information and data that the government res requires you to have safeguarded, essentially. So we use the 400,000 number, I think, is an agreed estimation as to where everybody's at. Um, for the rigors of an accreditation, which is really that level two that we're talking about, because level one mm -hmm. is sort of an attestation, if you will. Level two is the accreditation. And there are very few people that will need a level three, unless you're working on, I always like to say, force fields, bombs, nuclear weapons, aircraft carriers, or stealth fighters, you're probably not going to go out for a level three certification overall, right? Mm -hmm. But with that in mind, just, just pulling some things from the uh, Cyber Accreditation Board uh, website today before I came into this podcast, and I said, you know what? How many existing RPO, C3POs exist out there? Today, it's fifth, right? We're, we're minting maybe one or two of those a month. Not only that, but all of the certified assessors that are currently out there in the market sector, there are only 159 certified assessors in the market sector today. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so 50 people have to go, you know, basically use that pool of 159. And again, out yeah. of that 159, I'm going to tell you that 70 of those are high-end experience skill set, what we would call lead assessors, very good yeah. skill there. So it's going to take us a few iterations to get the assessments in, in the maturity in place in the ecosystem. FedRAMP had this problem when they first launched. Sarbanes-Oxley had this problem when they first launched out there. So this is not a problem unique to CMMC overall. And, you know, again, we're following the same tenets that we did under Sarbanes-Oxley, under HIPAA rollouts, under PCI DSS, under you name your, your, your accreditation, your FedRAMP is a great one, or CMMI from Carnegie Mellon are great ones to go take a look at, right, for that. But here's the other big issue. There's now MOUs going into the countries that are requiring their defense industrial base that support the U.S.'s manufacturing process. For instance, there's an MOU with Canada right now that says Canadian manufacturers who are developing parts for aircraft, and this is something that the Navy and the Air Force doesn't really talk about, is that when they deploy a force forward into the world, the Navy's all over the world, and they need a part, their carrier groups don't maintain, they don't have an auto zone essentially to go and grab these aircraft parts from, right? So what they do is they send these blueprints to wherever they're at in proximity. So wherever the next port of call is, they have a list of, uh, you know, vet vetted defense contractors essentially that will make these parts for them from scratch, right? So, and that's a, a cheaper way to maintain your supply chain. So you're not warehousing all these extra parts out there. Also, if I have to rapidly deploy my air force or my Navy or my army or my Marine Corps into a hostile zone, um, and I need to repair things, I'm going to need to use that local economy to be able to do that. So there's already agreements going out there with, um, Japan, Australia, the five I nations as well, right? G uh, Germany, Great Britain, France, Canada. Those organizations or countries also are going to be having to understand how to stand up their own version of this and support that. But until they do, guess who's on the hook to do it? It's us yeah. in our community. So now we're not just have the problem. We don't just have the problem of the U.S. centric organizations, but now we have these multinationals that are now vying for these level of these same resources overall. Yeah. So circling back to that multi-level supply chain and that scenario of a, a small subcontractor that doesn't have IT resources, 
is it, would a product like Touchstone be able to provide visibility to primes for how their various subs are on their CMMC journey? Absolutely. So let me first preface this by uh, going over how people are doing these issues, these things today. Uh, sure. We've worked with organizations like Boeing, for instance, that uses a platform out there called Exostar. Exostar allows you to create a survey, if you will, amongst all your, your, your subcontractors. So somebody, A, has to create the survey. Um, then they have to send it out. Then everybody has to answer the survey. Then they have to send it back. Then they have to collate the survey. And Boeing has got thousands of subcontractors. So somebody out there is you know, pulling all the stuff together in some sort of an Excel spreadsheet, putting pivot, pivot tables together to determine where their people are at in the compliance process. Um, so the good thing about Touchstone is that with the Prime and the subs all using the same effective platform together collaboratively, the automation will be able to ensure that data calls are automated and the journey of where the, per, uh, the individual organization or subcontractor is will automatically be reported and can also use key performance indicators such as, hey, when was the last time that we updated our things? How aged is our documentation? When was the last item that we had worked on? Because we have an audit trail of every interaction in the platform that rolls up into a larger report that goes to the prime contractor. Yeah. So now you didn't have to create the data call. You didn't have to send it out. People didn't have to answer it. You didn't have to get it back. You didn't have to collate it. You didn't have to create a report or a PowerPoint presentation for the executive staff to know where you're actively at. All of this stuff just happens within the system at whatever interval that we want it to happen at. And uh, we work essentially with each of the primes themselves out there to determine what is the best interval for them to receive these reports. Typically, once a month is what people want to see. Some of them want to see it once a week. But that's essentially what we do now. Again, imagine all the time now saved on the fact that four steps didn't have to be done. It's just automated on the back end. And the, the roll-up is right there for where we're at at a glance. Yeah. Well, and, and Aaron, turning to you and just sort of thinking about this crunch and 400,000 DIBs and 50 assessors and all of that, it, it seems to me, and all the documentation, let alone that, it seems to me that, you know, this may be AI's GovCon moment, right, to address what really seems to be a practically impossible thing to manage without leveraging tech technology like AI. So can you speak to that a little bit or... or you know, just sort of talk to how AI can help with this challenge. So absolutely. So we see AI sort of helping in a couple of uh, different ways here. And so mm -hmm. Tim spoke to some of the difficulties, both in just the sheer amount of documents, but then that it's an ongoing process. But one thing that he, he did mention, and I, I want to really dive into that, is the sort of the dearth of people who are really well uh, practiced in doing this. And so something that's happened is there is a huge amount of effort that goes into actually securing a system and consequently a huge amount of technical expertise that needs to come along with verify is this system actually compliant. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that AI is able to do is sort of help those newer analysts punch above their weight so they're able to make use of the sort of expertise that's been built into the AI. So that's sort of one of the real main benefits that um, sort of artificial intelligence is able to do is help all of these new analysts come up to uh, speed with the uh, just the huge breadth of technology that exists in these uh, organizations. So one is sort of 
helping make the uh, subjective analysis more objective. And that's one of the main things that AI can do. But then another thing is just dealing with the sheer amount of stuff. So, I mean, pictures, image, pictures, text, video, there's all manner of evidence that somebody that can be used to sort of validate compliance. And so AI is able to sort of ingest all of that and then objectively be able to say yay or nay on compliance. And even further, be able to give you a sort of a fidelity, like, oh, okay, we think this is really close to what you need to be to be compliant, or this is way off. And being able to do that in an objective way quickly is something where where AI can really shine. Sure. So let me ask you: I, there, you know, two sort of often uh, voiced challenges or fears with AI. Maybe I should say it that way, which is, hey. AI is going to take all the jobs, right? So you spoke to that just a minute ago. Hey, this is a tool that can actually be leveraged to help practitioners do more. Is that the right way to look at it? You know, sort of as a co-pilot, if you will? A hundred percent a co-pilot. A hundred percent as a co-pilot. But also, you know, we are in a, a unique area in that risk. Risk is involved. And so yeah. ultimately... When an analyst signs their name on the dotted line, they're taking a lot of responsibility. And so currently, there's no way to give that level of responsibility to an artificial intelligent agent. There's got to be a person on the line. And mm -hmm. so there's no way you can operate this process wholly without humans because humans are the people who are actually going to be responsible. And so where we exist is exclusively in that co-pilot space where we're helping people come to the right risk determination, whether or not that's we're going to accept the risk, we're comfortable with it, we're not. That's really where we help you is help you come to an understanding of is this, you know, is this compliant with this uh, implementing what it says it does? That, that's really where it's, it's, it's a partnership. It's not a a, a mutually exclusive relationship. Sure. So, so the other one I wonder about is we hear a lot of fears about, hey, I, my data is being ingested or stolen or repurposed by AI. So can you talk a little bit about your safeguards around protecting corporate data and all of that kind of dynamic? Certainly. So, you know, and I can only speak to, to you know, our organization. Yeah. And so, please. you know, within our organization, you know, of course, data gets anonymized, but even within that, your, your models stay sort of within your data. So we have a couple of different sort of deployment models. We have, of mm -hmm. course, a SaaS service and still there, that's a multi-tenant thing and people's uh, data is segmented uh, to their organization. But then what we're finding is a sort of a more common implementation is you can have it just implemented locally. And when it's implemented locally, the data doesn't leave your boundary. So whether or not that's, you know, in your own local cloud or whether or not you have a detached data center, you know, as long as the data resides there and doesn't go anyplace else, then you don't have any worry about, it, you know, somehow migrating into somebody else's LLM and that LLM be attacked and your data now shows up in somebody <laughs> else's stuff. Got it. So, so let's talk a little bit about some of those details if we can, just because, you know, my experience has been that AI is that people kind of rush to judgment or, or have fear versus, mm -hmm. you know, 
Absolutely. really understanding. So you've trained your model on the NIST 800 standards, right? So that's that's the, the 100% backbone here. So yeah. we started off, and that's a great, a great point. And we touched on this a little bit earlier. So again, speaking to my product, we come out of the experience of working with 853, and that's really where we were trained. And so 853 is not a new framework. It's been around yep. for a long time. There's a whole lot of documentation that exists about that shows you examples of what compliant uh, policies, uh, evidence looks like for 153. So that's really what our training point started off with. And so, so from further there, you know, 171 has come out, CMMC has come out, and subsequently we've been able to add on to our, our initial model with the additional documentation that's come out through that, be that, uh, you know, we, we work with other partners uh, like Dr. Dimmier with 171 and to help ensure that we're actually for these uh, frameworks that are sort of not the 853 stuff that we've, we've used with the federal government before, that we're actually really getting the right answers um, for 854 CMMC or 170. And then you, you spoke about this a little bit earlier, but when, when data or documents are ingested, the system has the ability to sort of um, chunk it or determine it's in or it's out, it's, it's, it's meeting the framework or not. Is that how it works? Absolutely. And that's actually one of the critical differentiators between uh, our system and some of the more run-of-the-mill mm -hmm. RAG systems that you'll see. And so RAG is an acronym, stands for like retrieval augmented generation. And so yeah. common, like common thing that you're seeing now in terms of LLMs. And so one of the huge differentiators from us is purpose built for 853. So our chunks yeah. are designed to be chunks that are for the assessment objective for the security control. And so as a consequence of that, the, when the, we're presenting a chunk of data or a summarized um, set of chunks of data to the analyst, there are things that make sense together because they're in the context of the security control or the assessment objective that the uh, assessor wants to look at or whoever picked the role, you know, within, you know, Tim, uh, Dr. Tim mentioned this. There's, this is a huge cyclical process. There's many roles starting from the CISO all the way down to, the, you know, the, the lowly developer. All of those folks have, you know, views that they need to see and information that sort of they wrote that's specifically tailored to their, their thing and it makes a lot of sense. And in the bigger picture, that creates a secure system. And for like, when you're looking at it just for just them, that's the piece of information that they really care about. And so Ronathan specializes in understanding your role and then understanding based off of your role and all of our training, this is the chunk of data that I want to show you. Interesting. So, and, and the last question, just in terms of how it works here is, I think you all have like a fitness model or the question is, how does the system actually learn as content comes in and how does it aggregate it to say, you know, as a, as a model, it's becoming more and more knowledgeable itself and more and more useful to practitioners. So two points. So in terms of the model itself learning, we do have this fitness element where you're able to say, give me more of things like this. And it's essentially, uh, and you guys have, uh, most people I'm not sure at this point have used like a Facebook or an Instagram, something like that, where you're able to give feedback in the form of a thumbs up 
or a like or something like that. Okay. So with Ronathan, by being able to essentially thumbs up things or say, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree with this. You're saying this is this is right. I, I like content like this for my role and show me more things like this. And so over time, it learns. The model itself learns. But then there's the secondary bit of learning. We sort of spoke to this a little bit about the idea of subjective analysis. I'm sorry. The idea of subjective versus objective analysis. And so over time, there's an evolution that happens with your documents. And Dr. Tim spoke to this. You want to see them aging. You want to see evidence uh, of these things actually taking place. And so what Ronathan does is you're able to uh, get a, a, a score for the document and the evidence at a point in time. And then you're able to maybe next year or next assessment, get new evidence, same policies. You get another score and you're able to see over time, hey, am I becoming more a higher fidelity with this security control? Is my fidelity going down? What's happening with the mm-hmm. security controls? And then this is a point we didn't touch on when you can then bring that into, okay, what's actually happening on my network in terms of indicators of compromise, indicators of threat. And that's actually something that another thing, Dr. Tim's product, you're really able to step up. Oh, are these policies that I'm implementing actually making me more secure on the network or, you know, am I just doing them for fun? So that, that, that sort of subjective, the, I'm sorry, objective analysis combined with seeing how it works over time with these workflows is a really powerful story. And I saw I totally went off base there, but get excited sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Tim, I want to turn to you, but just last question for you, Aaron, for for this moment is the big one, I think, when I look at this is, so I've I've, I've brought my documents into the system. The AI has, you know, gone through it and said, yay, nay. And I kind of know where I am and what my, where I am from a maturity standpoint. And as you said, over time, I can see the progress of that. But if I have gaps, can an AI system actually write the missing policies for me? Can it, can it improve the policies that I have currently? What, what is the, what is the capabilities there? It's so it can, but that's that co-pilot thing, right? And who, what are your actually... Again, ultimately, you're responsible for the risk. So we can suggest yeah. things to you. Okay. But that's, you mean that it needs to be a policy that's going to be secure. So we can suggest them to you. You can then also run them back through Ronathan, see what the fidelity score is. Yeah. We, so we could suggest them for you and we can certainly write them for you and we can certainly give you a higher fidelity score. <laughs> this is something critical about security though. Just because you're compliant doesn't make it secure. And so that's great. So Tim, let me let me jump to you. That to me, that notion of marrying all that the AI can do as a co-pilot to the practitioner might be an answer to this great squeeze that we know is coming. I mean, can you can you connect some of those dots in terms of how AI could help improve the provider ecosystem, if you will? No, absolutely. Uh, again, I think I touched on it earlier in uh, the conversation that we had where it's really going to be able to cut down on our time, effort, and energy on mm-hmm. trying to figure out what we don't know. So, you know, there's a, a pretty well-known consulting firm that consulted with Equifax. Equifax had a breach of security after that firm had uh, conducted an accreditation of their system. Again, this is a, you know, a, a big five firm. 
out there. And this, this big firm had a lot of liability that was residual from that. And that's, that's the big thing about us, the accreditation bodies and, and the issuing the accreditation. We're the ones that are ultimately responsible that if we don't catch something, the risk is that we get sued. We're responsible for the damages as, as much as the, the, the person getting breached, right? So as we kind of move through all these things, understanding and correlating all of the documentation to the, the, the fair extent of being able to identify where these issues and gaps were, had this type of technology been available, you know, 10 plus years ago for that, that breach, right? Prior to the breach, right? Again, this is a classic issue of a team coming in, not being either provided enough documentation to, to make that correlation that there's something wrong with the security program in itself, or maybe they missed some evidence, or maybe it was fabricated, who knows, right? So I feel it was, again, so much information for people to look through. They didn't connect all the dots. Yeah, probably divided the work amongst multiple teams who talked about the end result, but didn't talk about the journey to the end result overall, right? And again, that's where AI is so great at going in, because this is all basically a math problem at the end of the day. I, I, I don't want to bore anybody with the, the technology portions of it, but think of it like this. It's like a statistical analysis plotting cluster groups on a, on a grid, essentially. So if you've ever got a, a, a scatter chart, things that are really close together are like things, right? Things that diverge from that model are things that are, hmm, maybe I should start to take a look at this. And this is how the AI really works through these, these issues is they find the things that are like and then give the likelihood based on of what it knows, what it's been trained on and what it's been shown as to whether or not that that's what we should be looking at, right. To correlate that. But yeah, that's, that's the, you know, the best way to let AI make the short work of it. Let it do the correlation. I don't know that I trust any AI yet to write things all on its own. I, like Aaron stated, I think it's great to go bounce something off the AI and say, well, I'm thinking of this. What would be, what am I missing? Essentially, I can identify what you're missing and then you can provide that. It gives you the prompting as a human being to have that, that back and forth, if you will, like you hired a technical writer or a consultant to say, Hey, what if this, what if that, Hey, how's this look? What's this look like? And then the AI can provide you the, the ultimately the indicators of where you need to go to, to get those answers. But as far as just filling things in, you know, your business process best, the humans, they knew the business process best. The humans know the, the, you know, it's, again, it's people first, processes second, and then technologies third that feed into all those things to be able to get us to the finish line. Yeah. So one thing to, I'd just like to add here or ask you about is thinking about, hey, as more and more assessors join the ranks and get into, you know, filling that gap that's there. I've heard the term of, you know, an LLM kind of being like compressed knowledge, right? That it's, it's aggregating and learning and, and pulling all this data together. Is there a role for AI to sort of help train up assessors or sort of help them get up to speed faster? I mean, is, is there, what would you just say about that notion? Yeah, let's take our workforce problem that we got. Yeah. We'd cited earlier that there are about 180 assessors out there, of which 70 are top-notch. They're, they're the, 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 the best of the best. The rest mm -hmm. of those people coming in are entry-level, meaning that they've probably never done assessments before. And even if you have done assessments, you haven't done assessments for this specific domain of expertise. So again, we're all starting from scratch. We're all starting new and we all have to learn and make mistakes. And mm -hmm. so as the AI starts to spot trends and issues, because it's a pattern matching system, 
right? It can essentially help the people that are lesser skilled. So the way I look at it is like this. In our organization, when we bring in somebody who's uh, got a brand new skill set, I have to pair them up currently with a person with a senior skill set, and they are under the wing of that person. Well, that eats into the time that that person has to be able to do their job function. In addition to conducting their job function, they're now in a training function as well, right? So what if, you know, just crazy idea here, what if we could use um, these AI models to be able to say, here's all the information and data that I have access to. Based on the thing you have in your hand, here's the issues that I see on that, right? And somebody who's inexperienced is just going to implicitly trust that model to say, okay, yeah, great, but at least they can, and the AI model will not be right 100% of the time, but it will be right enough to be able to allow the person to start to infer the proper methods and answers to the questions that they have without the need of that senior skill set to be, you know, allocated to doing that. I still think that there should be mentorship. I still think that there should be human in the loop everything that we do. I think AI is nothing more than a tool like a calculator to help us solve math problems because that's essentially what we're doing here. Got it. I, I, I like that. I like that analogy. And Jay, I want to pivot to you now to, to sort of get earlier in the cycle, right? So before assessment, getting ready for an assessment, if I'm a business owner or CIO and I think about all these CMMC controls and maybe I think about all this patchwork of policies and procedures I have and then all the hardware and software and all of that kind of stuff, it seems like an immense patchwork to, to manage there. And if I know that my capacity is stretched thin on the IT side, what's the solution to that? What would you, you say about a, a best practice for approaching that really challenging mosaic of, of not only controls, but actual day-to-day -day IT activities? Well, you know, I think from a, from an IT professional um, perspective and, and, you know, a, a company is going to uh, decide uh, where their expertise lies and it, it's the classic build versus buy, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, so, you know, you need to have a good set of security professionals, IT professionals, people are going to keep up with the industry and, and that kind of thing. And you know, as Tim said, this is an ongoing thing, right? It's not like, hey, I'm CMMC certified. Now I can put that on the shelf and go on. It's got to become an ongoing thing, a lifestyle. So from my perspective, this kind of harkens back to when we started TBS 19 years ago. You know, one of the things we used to say to people is, you know, you're going to deploy your resources and you need to decide what is the highest value of those resources back then? And, you know, this kind of grew into an entire industry. People began to understand that they want to utilize their information systems, that the value of operating them is relatively low. Right. I like to think that there is a segment in the market that is relatively large and growing for whom outsourcing the entire process with, with an organization who understands compliance and who will sign up, sign you up for a service that gives you transparent compliance and contractual compliance, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things many people will do is they'll say, well, I'll either train my own people that can be time consuming and expensive. And then you get into the whole turnover issue. You know, you, you train somebody up, they know everything. It's great. And then one of your competitors offers them another five grand they're gone and you kind of get back on the horse and you do it again because your requirement hasn't gone away because your, your, your resource went away. No, 
And so, you know, you may turn to your current provider who may have been doing an absolutely great job, but they may be commercially oriented, right? And it's a big lift for an organization, as everyone will find out, to kind of move to a compliance mindset, right? And so, you know, what I would say is consider outsourcing it. Make sure that your, your provider has experience, your provider is committed to compliance as, as, as a portfolio item, you know, and not every, not every company does that and they don't have to, right? In the commercial world, there are standards and you can adhere to those standards in and around the defense industrial base and the federal government at large, it's all about compliance and, and, and our customers will know that, right? We're not saying anything new to them. <laughs> they deal with the government. They understand compliance. And the truth be told is, you know, NIST 800-171 has been there for years. And, and, and so for, for years, people have said, yeah, I, I pretty much do that. Right? And so now it's going to be, you know, the external test. So I would say, do the cost-benefit analysis, right? You know, be, be honest with yourself. It's like, okay, if I'm going to do this, you know, what is not only the initial cost, but what is the ongoing cost, not only in dollars, but also in 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 resources and mind share, right? Mm -hmm. so as a small to medium-sized company, you're going to have to pay attention to these things, right? And so how much of that do you, how much of that resource do you want to dedicate? And so I would say for a lot of people, it's, it's a great option, you know, and, and it's one of the things that I think you'll see it as a growing segment. People are like, you know what? I, I need to buy not only the service, but the compliance. Yeah. Well, so just... In the CMMC context, sort of thinking about all the acronyms, uh, there's RPOs, but in guidance, you know, the DOD talks about MSPs and CSPs and all of that, cloud service providers. Is, is there a distinction between just a commercial MSP and an RPO? Can you talk a little bit about that? Just kind of help explain some of those terms. Well, you know, and I'll start with the commercial MSP. Commercial mm -hmm. MSP. You know, it, it's not a new thing. A lot of them do a really great job, but it gets back to the difference of the compliance ori orientation. So I would say, let's go with someone who, you know, when they get up in the morning, they think about compliance. And, and when they, they log off at night, they're still thinking about compliance. Yep. So you need someone who I think understands, you know, things like NIST 800, things like CMMC, all that other kind of good stuff. So not saying a corporate contractor can't do that, but sometimes it's a matter of focus. And it's interesting, TBS became an RPO the last year, kind of with the cavalcade of all the other people who did it. But our, you know, our, the reason we did that was different, right? We, we, we don't do assessments. We can help our customers get to certain things and so forth. But the reason we did it was because we are providing CME, CMC um, compatible services, right? We needed the internal knowledge, it right? Is in order to develop the policies, procedures internally for us as an MSP, we needed to thoroughly understand it, right? And so yep. that was really the reason we did that. And we, you know, we said, we'll become an RPO, we'll bring in the registered professionals because it's got to infuse everything we do, right? So every service we provide, be it the MSP side, the SaaS side, so forth, all goes through the CMMC lens. So for us, it was more of an investment in making sure we can provide the services to our customer appropriately. Yeah. And so, yeah, you'll, you'll never see CM TBS come out and say, let me do your assessment because we're just not on that side of the fence. But what we can say is that 
you know, we have thoroughly ingested CMMC and, 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 and kind of weaved it through everything we do so that we can, for our customer base, provide that kind of knowledge and service at that level. Sure. So, so just expanding beyond that from the MSP, but thinking about sort of the cloud provider landscape, most organizations have embraced what's now called the multi-cloud, right? Which is I'm using many different uh, providers for my remote solutions. Uh, again, are, are, are some CSPs, they get the GovCon thing and they understand CMMC and some don't, or, or what do I do if I, if I, I want to use multiple clouds and sort of bring them together in my business? Well, you know, I think you, you hit on it. Not, not every cloud provider understands the GovCon requirements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, multiple clouds is a thing that is, uh, is here and it's going to grow. I mean, it's one of those things where if you look at any industry and if it's dominated by one or two people, then for the most part, you can wait for it to become dominated by more people because that's just economics, right? There are very few industries that over time are concentrated with one or two people, which means that you're going to buy cloud services from multiple people. One of the key things is if you are in more than one cloud, okay, is the integration and the data flows and do they comply with CMMC? That's one of the things. So you've got to go with a provider who actually understands that you're like, hey, you know what? I've got um, this service with this cloud provider. I've got this with that cloud provider and I want to move data back and forth. Well, what exactly does that do from a CMMC perspective, right? Mm-hmm. How does government look at that? Are they both compliant? If there's one compliant, where's the data going? That kind of thing. So, you know, I think that when you're selecting somebody, it just has to become part of your selection criteria, you know, for all of your services. And from a multi-cloud perspective, particularly, right? Because there may be, you know, we've actually run into um, other cloud providers who are really good at what they did. But when we bought up things like NIST and CMMC, they were kind of like, what is that, right? Doesn't mean they weren't secure. Doesn't mean they don't do what they do very well. It just wasn't in their bailiwick. And this was literally us, you know, connecting a large airplane manufacturer to another service, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it was really, it was kind of a shock because the other people were like, yeah, we can do that. No problem. Let's do it. Here's the connect information. You know, it's funny, things really came to a head when we sent them a contract that said, you know, you have to meet these, these things. And they're like, we don't know what those things are, you know? Okay. You have to talk about that. So, you know, it it is, it's not so much a matter of what you can't do. It's a matter of when you're doing something, you have to know it, right? Because, you know, and I'm sure that Tim or Aaron can tell you that, you know, those are the things that will pop up in evaluation, you know? Hey, how are you getting that data? Where does it come from? And that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. So, you know, you want to be careful and you want to make sure that whoever you're partnered with is going to look for those. Got it. So just in terms of the lingo piece, one of the terms that's kind of bubbled up in the last several months is this concept of a CMMC enclave. Can you describe what that is from a cloud perspective and just sort of what, what that means? Well, you know, part of it is, is with CMMC, it's starting at kind of level twin going up. There are differing requirements in terms of security, network, network accessibility, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there may be companies out there, I shouldn't say maybe, there are companies out there who will have differing requirements. 
Yeah. And so there may be a contract they have with a limited set of people who need a certain level of security. And so a CMMC enclave is, you know what? I am going to create an environment in the cloud and it is going to meet X level, right? And it's not your whole company or that kind of thing. Now you still have to, you know, if, you're, if your company is bound CMMC, you have to do that. But, you know, for instance, we have a customer who was like, you know, this data, you know, it cannot be accessed OCONUS and, you know, you cannot move it OCONUS, right? And so, you know, what we basically did was we said, you know what, here, here's where the data lives, right? And, you know, we built the security around it. Whereas, you know what, if you go out of the country, you know, you can't get to it. Or if you're trying to send it to somebody who's out of the country, you can't do that, right? So that enclave was created literally for them. And it's one of those things where we sent it up for, for a customer. And, you know, it was about, I guess we were about three months in when we got a help desk call. Person had gone on vacation, you know, and they're like, I'm going to do some work. You're like, why can't I connect? It says this thing doesn't exist. And, you know, everybody kind of looked around and we were like, hey, where are you? You know, I'm in London. It's like, oh, that's it. You know, you are yeah. Oconus. You'll have to wait till you get back. You yeah. know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's what I mean by setting up an, an enclave. And, you know, what I think you want is a partner who can give you those kind of options. You know, not for everybody, but there are those things. And I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the people who were like, you know, I, I need to. I need to access blueprints for something, you know. We actually had a customer who, you know, one of their subs needed to look at blueprint to do uh, lawn work, you mm-hmm. know. But the blueprints, you know, they were CY. Yep. <laughs> so literally they, you know, I think in the past they'd been emailing, can't do that. You set up an enclave where the customer can log in, can see the blueprint, right? They can't download it. They can't forward it on. They can't do anything else, but they, they can sit there and say, okay, that's the part of the, the base that I have to maintain, you know, and then they can close it out. And so you've controlled the data in an enclave. You're able to make sure that only the right people are seeing it, increase security. So, yeah. So, so just thinking back to Fear's original example, you know, 40 some minutes ago, a small subcontractor doing that kind of work. I mean, is an enclave a good option for them or does an enclave give visibility or peace of mind to a, to their prime as an example? Well, you know, I, I think in the case that I, that I talked about, the prime was really happy yeah. because the alternatives were really expensive and somebody was going to pay the freight. It was going to yeah. be the prime or the sub. And quite frankly, the sub couldn't afford it and the prime didn't want to pay it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it's the kind of thing where you can craft a solution, you know, and, and go in and, and you, you know, you, you check all of the boxes from a security perspective and you, you do your testing and everything. So, yeah, it, it is. And it is one of the things that, you know, in, in our environment, we will kind of sell those by the drink. Right. You know, because literally to take that sub and try to fit them into this environment was just never going to work. Right. Mm-hmm. But. The prime was happy because they're like, you know what? I know I, I can, I can look at this and I, I know they do it and I, I've seen the testing and so forth and so on. So, you know, it's really about fitting, you know, the, the right compliance offering for the right customer. And mm-hmm. I, I think that it is, it is very possible to, you know, I don't want to say make everyone happy, but make everyone as happy as you can be. Right. Sure. It meets compliance. 
you know, the prime is happy because they know that, you know, if somebody asks them about it, they can confidently say yes. And the sub is happy because they continue to do the work. So, God, that's great. So I want to kind of wrap this up. I know we could go on all day about this. I know I certainly could. I, I wanted to just sort of bring it back to some of the lessons learned from today's podcast and just kind of repeat them back to you all. And if you want to validate them or if there's anything you want to add, you know, please let me know. But Theo, you know, partnership is key when it comes to CMMC. That's a big takeaway I heard. And you know, the CMMC consortium is really living, breathing embodiment of that, if you will. And, and Tim, you know, visibility and transparency are essential for compliance and for the CMMC ecosystem. And there is technology out there that is answering that challenge. Like AI, you know, Aaron, again, I, you know, to me, what I heard from you is that this is really AI's GovCon moment, if you will. If you can take that visibility and that AI learning, it could really solve that bottleneck challenge for the DIB. And, and Jay, you know, leveraging smart technology providers when compliance is baked in for CMMC sort of addresses that compliance lifestyle issue, right? This isn't a, a moment in time. This is an ongoing way of operating going forward. So if anyone, any of you want to jump in and add to that or just any final thoughts here before we wrap up, that would be great. Right. And I'd like to share just from the business perspective for, you know, this to be a, a heavy lift from resources for these small to mediums and large companies as well. Typically, the larger companies, the bigger primes have already probably been operating at a higher level as it, as it stands. And now the way I've looked at it, it's been sort of like the recommendation the last several years. CMMC is like the rider around it saying, here's the enforcement policy for it. And yeah. now all these hundred, three, four hundred thousand businesses need to get ramped up. And so to look at it as a business from a business perspective or business case, okay. How many people, you know, is this in my wheelhouse? Like for me personally, I want to stay in my lane. I want to stay with what I'm good at. It's bringing people together, you know, trying to solve a complex problem. I'm not a cybersecurity person or technical person. That's why I surround myself with people like that. And I increasingly become more paranoid. Thanks guys. No, <laughs> but you know, for me as a business owner myself, I have to also, you know, how, how can I implement these, these type, these, this new lifestyle? And I like that, Jay, as you mentioned. It's a lifestyle change. So incorporating that into it's the way the way you're operating business moving forward. So, you know, looking at it to offset some costs, blending it into your direct or indirect costs, you know, talk to your accountant about it. I'm not an accountant, but, you know, you know, if there's a five million dollar business that's going to end up spending fifty thousand dollars, it's about one percent. Right. So they can figure out a way to offset some of their costs moving forward. Now, also with the with the bottleneck that's coming, the companies that get through first and prioritize this, the cream will rise to the top. They're going to be the only ones on the other side of the fence. So they'll be able to win work. There's going to be a lot of attrition. A lot of companies aren't going to make it. They're going to end up getting out of the DOD space. So there's going to be some consolidation probably. So that's also the other business. If you don't do something now, you're going to get left behind. The ones that do take this seriously now will get through it should be strategic about it, you know, stay in their lane, bring on the resources, you know, we've identified here today, but then also incorporate into some of your pricing. And then, you know, we'll love to be a resource as well from the consortium perspective, because essentially it's a shared model, shared cost model. So we can then translate and then obviously leveraging technology so we can do things faster and more cost effective 
and then translating that to the end customer as well, right? And in time, we're going to drive some of the expenses or costs or investment that is going to be drive those down over time as well. So I look at it from a business perspective, and that's, I think, the case behind it. Yeah, yeah. Aaron and Tim, are there any lessons learned today that you want to underscore or any lingering myths about CMMC you want to dispel before we wrap up? I just want to make sure we're covering all the bases today. Yeah, I, I think the big thing I can kind of go over is that everybody still thinks that, you know, somehow the government's going to continue to kick the can down the road just because yeah. it's been slow and methodical to get this yeah. implemented. During the rulemaking process, the government is not allowed to talk about any of these things that it's currently doing, what, what its thought process is or where we're going until we get out of that process, right? Mm -hmm. On December 26th, that process is effectively stopped. We are now in the commentary period, which it basically means that the government stated that here's the new rules, here's all the publishing of the new rules. So this is now the interim rule. And then from there, you know, we're going to allow a commentary period so that people can air grievances or whatnot. And then they're going to make a decision as to what they're going to do and how they're going to roll this out. Right. So we're right on the cusp of that occurring. And so I think a lot of organizations have been holding back uh, from yeah. their journey. There's a lot of people getting educated. There's a lot of people asking lots of questions, a lot of meetings happening, a lot of assessments going on out there. People are doing the right thing to start to get to the end of this stream, if you will, to get the journey started. But the big thing I would state is, like Theo had stated, don't wait until the proverbial last minute because as we get rushes uh, on the assessing side and our finite resources get saturated, A, the prices are going to go way up, and B, because of supply and demand, right? Yep. And B, you might not be able to get you know, an accreditation within the window that you're really required to get it within your window of. Again, mileage may vary at contract to contract out there and depending on how the government decides to roll this out on the implementation. So January 1st of 2025 is the first period that contracting officers can actually put the DFARS clause into the contracts. Whether they're going to do that retroactively, unknown, that'll yep. differ on a case-by-case -case basis. But we do know that we're on a five-year plan. We're about three years into the five-year plan that the government announced. They're right on target for what they'd stated that they were going to be doing. And yeah. Here we are. So again, this is not something that we're not going to implement. It's already law. It has yep. to be enforced and, and we're already coming down the road on that. So got it. Aaron and Jay, anything you want to add before we uh, wrap up today? For me, the only thing is, you know, let technology help you in this process. There is a lot of work to be done and there is a lot of technology that can help you. Now you do have to be a little bit cognizant, not everything out there can can deliver, you know, secure policy, secure, whatever, but there is technology out there to help you. And I think we would be remiss also to not speak to the fact that the government was aware that this is an ongoing problem and they're yeah. actively putting out new bits of technology, new standards, new schemas to help industry overcome odds cows one up. And there's a lots just lots of new coming technologies and really need to be aware of what's out there. Of the moving fast. Yeah. Yeah. Jay, any final words from you? Yeah. But, you know, what I would say is, you know, and, and I know that this is probably counterintuitive for, for a lot of people who are beginning the CMMC journey, but, you know, I, I think that it's really an opportunity. You know, it, it's funny. People think of it as a regulation, but the, the ideal is to secure your company and the resources you, you utilize to support the government. So, you know, this is an opportunity, I think, 
for companies to kind of improve their their standing with their customers, uh, with their prospects, and you know to really secure it. And I, I think that you know uh, places like the consortium where you can find resources that fit you, that give you what you need, are important. And you know I, I think that you know it's hard to see it on, on this side of the change, uh, but I, I think that it's it's going to be good. I mean, you know, earlier Tim mentioned some of the other regulatory changes that we went through and how it started off on the rough side. But for most of those, you look back at it, you're like, you know what? The industry is actually better off afterwards. And so I think that's what's going to happen here. You know, and I, I think that uh, this is a great place to find the fit for you. Um, and I do guarantee you, if you don't find the fit in the group, the consortium, they know somebody who will. So that, that's how I'd close it out. That's great. Well, thank you guys uh, for your time today. And thank you everyone for joining today's Mosaic podcast. We'll see you soon. Bye, everyone. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Podcast by Technology and Business Solutions, the GovCon multi-cloud pioneer for more than 20 years. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow the Mosaic Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time. See you next time.